Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is William Green. He's written a new book called Richer, Wiser, Happier, How the World's Greatest Investors Win in Markets and Life. He's interviewed many of the greatest investors of all time. He's, he's talked to them about how to succeed in the markets and in life. It's a fascinating discussion. It's coming up just after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquires Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquires Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. I had this terrible moment when I was a child where I was at this school called Collet Court in London and I dived into a pool and I was swimming like crazy and and you know I wasn't a very elegant swimmer to say the least that's flattering to myself and after about a minute I suddenly realized that nobody else was swimming that it was a false start and so the entire class was just watching me moronically splashing around in the pool and so I think this has been sort of the the terror ever since has been that you know I, I'm the one quietly splashing in the pool and everyone else is, is realizing it and is watching me making a fool of myself. <laughs> so th what I was saying to you before is I, I think to some degree that paranoia has protected me because I'm always like, oh God, what am I about to do that's going to make a tremendous fool of myself? You got to keep on working. I, as a swimmer, uh, I have done that myself many times and, oh, have you that, have? and seen that happen many times. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't be too worried about it. That's funny. I'm such a bad swimmer and I've swum so little that it hadn't occurred to me that that was a common thing. It, I, I'm like, no, time. I'm the only person this has ever happened to. I, I've seen in 50 meter races, particularly freestyle, where it's really just, you know, you could throw your laundry in with the swimmers and have your yeah. laundry done on the way down. You've got no, you don't breathe. You don't put your head up above the water. You just swim all the way to the wall. Huh. I've had many races and seen many races where I've got to the wall and realized it was a false start. Sometimes they have a rope that they drop halfway down, yeah. but you can easily go under the rope or they don't get there in time. It happens regularly. Well, that's good. So you've comforted me after 40 years <laughs> of, uh, of misery about this thing. I, I, I finally can put that to rest. So thank but you. You'd have never had the career that you had without carrying <laughs> yeah. that around and making yeah. it driving you to, to get better and better. It's true. I'm so I'm so deeply scarred by it that probably I'll never I'll never be able to get rid of it anyway. So yeah, it's part it's part of my wiring at this point. Where, where are you Where are you based? I'm in Irvington, New York, which is about 45 minutes north of New York City, and it's it's beautiful. But part of the problem is that I'm in this um, mostly glass house, and so I have a two year old dog who sees deer walking outside and mailman and just goes nuts. So if every few minutes you hear uh that my dog has got loose and is barking at someone you'll, you'll know what it is but hopefully she's under control downstairs i have a three-year-old child who likes ah. uh who likes rabbits and we have lots of rabbits in the backyard so you might hear ah. the same thing he might run behind me to, to watch the rabbits in a moment that's sweet where are you i'm in los angeles oh okay. we're, we're in this little uh kind of surfing village a little bit out of uh los angeles proper so we have um the backyard is like uh uh rabbits and uh uh we've got groundhogs which i, I thought oh, that was kind of i'd never seen you know yeah. being australian i've never seen a groundhog yeah. before but uh the first time i saw one i thought that's really cool and now they shredded the backyard so i, oh, I realized really? why people don't like them yeah swiss I, cheese I, the backyard 
I still am happy for the deer to chew the crap out of our yard. I sort of feel like it's just fine. Yeah, it's fun. I, I, I'd much rather live among nature. Yeah. So you, you've written a new book, Richer, Wiser, Happier. It's just the cover there for folks who are watching the YouTube channel, How the World's Greatest Investors Win in Markets and Life. So I love this idea. So the book is not about so much the markets. It's about advice that they provide outside of their investing. Why do you think that they... Why do you think that they have some perspective worth sharing outside of outside of the markets? Well, I think one of the things that's so distinctive about the greatest investors is that they naturally think in terms of odds and stacking the odds in their favor. And so I think once you start doing that in markets, you probably apply the same way of thinking in every area of life. And so I think they become this extraordinary filter for how to succeed professionally, personally, which is a counterintuitive idea because we think about billionaires and the like as having the world's most dysfunctional lives, which is clearly true in many cases. But I think this kind of elite group of worldly wise investors that I've been focused on are actually remarkable thinkers about how to stack the odds in their in their favor in not just markets, but in life. And so if you think, for example, about someone like Charlie Munger, for example, who I interviewed in your neck of the woods in LA, here's someone who's, who's massively, massively intelligent and yet is utterly focused on simply reducing what he calls standard stupidities. That's an extraordinarily powerful and robust idea that actually just applies to, to every area of life. Or, or think of someone like Ed Thorpe, who I describe as, as probably the greatest game player in the history of, of investing. Here's someone who is obsessed with only playing games that he can win, with surviving catastrophe, making, making, making sure that you don't blow yourself up and, and, and knock yourself out of the game. That's something that applies just as well to a period like COVID, where you just want to survive and get through this intact as it does to investing. So for me, there's always this really fascinating intersection between how you survive and prosper amid the uncertainty and complexity of markets and how you survive and prosper amid the uncertainty and complexity of life. They're not that different. I think that uh, you've, you sort of draw an interesting uh, idea from both uh, Munger and from Thorpe in the sense that they are both focused on avoiding catastrophic loss or avoiding stupidity, avoiding mistakes. Is that something that you found? Was that a theme that you found recurring throughout discussions with these folks? I think it's enormously important. It's enormously important. I I mean, one of the most fascinating conversations that I had was with Ed Thorpe when I, I was calling to fact check with him. And I'd had, I'd had something like a, a three-hour breakfast with him a couple of years ago in New York City, talking about um, how, how he stacked the odds in all of these areas of life, whether it's beating the casino at blackjack or beating the casino at roulette by making a, the first handheld, the first wearable computer so you could figure out the speed of the rotator wheel and the ball as it went around around the roulette wheel. And then a few months ago, I called him again because I was fact-checking and I wanted to update my book. And I said, well, how have you been dealing with COVID? You know, how did you think about it? And there was a kind of pause and he said, well, thank you for asking. And it suddenly, it suddenly turned out, he sort of un unloaded this, uh, this amazing explanation of how it was that he, he had approached this that was so, so fantastically consistent with everything else he's done and with this obsession with with avoiding catastrophe. So he told me that he had basically, back in, I think, about January or February of 2020, 
he's when when nobody in the US was really that concerned. We all just thought this was a problem in China. Um, and we were all, for the most part, pretty lax about uh, about even reading about it and following it. He starts to analyze all of the data from Wuhan, pays particular attention to unexplained deaths, starts to figure out based, based on that data and also on inferences that he made from the 1918 to 19 Spanish flu, which killed his grandfather, starts to figure out what he regards as the true fatality rate, and then decides, okay, I think he, he calls his entire family together and he says, we're gonna lose somewhere between 200,000 and 500,000 people in the US over the next 12 months. And this is before a single person had, had been recorded as dying in the US. And so he puts himself in isolation. And, and a month before all of the shelves get cleared of things like detergent and toilet paper and stuff, he's out there actually buying things like masks while they're all in, in great supply. So this is a, a, a really quintessential piece of, of, of investor rationality, right? He's, he's looking at the data totally objectively, totally impartially. He's questioning the authorities. He's not saying, well, we're being reassured that it's all right. You know, he, he knows that the politicians are liars and are gonna distort everything. He knows that the data is gonna be really murky and he's just playing the odds and he's putting the odds in his favor. And so he said that there's no point being scared but I figured out my own likelihood of dying. And he said, if I get COVID, given the fact that I'm an 86 year old, I think he was then with, with no comorbidities and I'm very fit and I'm very careful, I probably have a 2% to 4% chance of dying. And he's like, that doesn't sound like that terrible uh, a bet, but actually those are pretty high odds and I wanna survive, I wanna survive this period. So even when he saw his kids, for example, his adult kids, they would meet outside distanced and with masks. And he's ba he basically then was only seeing his wife. And so he's sort of holed up in this idyllic home of overlooking the beach in California because he just realized I need, I need to calculate the odds for myself, look at the data for myself, and then basically stack the odds in my favor by avoiding the possibility of catastrophe because I have to stay in the game. And think about the application of that to investing. You, you think about someone like this guy Huang who just blew himself up. You just have to stay in the game. You, you know, the, the worst thing that you can do is blow yourself up, however smart and successful you are. And so there's someone like Huang, who's obviously way more intelligent than I am, way more successful than I am, but he, but he missed this kind of cardinal rule. And so I, I see this running, running through the lives of all of the best investors, this idea of putting survival an, an avoidance of catastrophe right at the top of your list of things to do. When you're conducting interviews like this, how do you how do you do it? Do you have a meal with them and record the conversation over the course of a meal? Is that how they conduct it? It's different with every person. I mean, in, in this book, I, 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 I'm kind of nuts and obsessive, right? So I literally, I went to India for five days with Monish Pabrai. And so I'm traveling across India. I'm literally sleeping in a bunk bed with, with Monish on an all night train from, uh, I think it was Kota to Mumbai. And so that's really intimate and, and you're really getting into their life. We're sitting, we're sitting in, this, in this car sort of veering, ve veering madly across the highway while I'm kind of writing, writing notes and recording and you know we're in between trucks and I'm like closing my eyes in horror. And he's just sitting there kind of 
totally calm in the presence of risk like but he's like yeah but the the accident rate here is very high and so <laughs> so you know I'm, I'm recording him while I'm doing that then I'm in a school with him for for a school that's funded by the Dakshana Foundation which is his his philanthropic foundation so I'm seeing how he's interacting with the, with these kids who who he's lifting out of poverty in in rural India then I'm with him at the Omaha meeting a couple of years then I'm uh Go, go, going out to his favorite Korean restaurant in Irvine, California, while he's sitting there eating, you know, um, his 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 fa his favorite spicy food. And so, so, so what I'm trying to do is is get this kind of deep intimacy, where I'm actually seeing how people are operating in every area of their life. And so, that that would be an extreme case. But with someone like Tom Gaynor, the co CEO of Markel, I spent. The best part of two days with him in uh, in Virginia. I went, I, you know, I went to his home for dinner. And there's this, you know, someone like Tom. He's a he's a remarkably understated and modest CEO, uh, co CEO of a major Fortune 500 company. And I'm I'm literally I'm leaving his office after a full day interviewing him, and he drives in his in his hybrid car, you know, this tiny cheap car to the supermarket, and he's buying fish and ice cream to make us dinner and then we're in his apartment making making dinner and then literally his wife who runs one of the businesses at Markel we sit down at the table together and and they hold your hands to say grace and so there's something kind of wonderfully intimate about it where I'm actually trying to get it not only inside the minds of these great investors but inside their lives and and give a sense of the consistency that runs through all of their ways of operating. So for someone like Tom, who's really, a, you know, he's a very, very decent, grounded, modest human being. He was, uh, you know, he's, he's someone who really wants to create an iconic, emblematic uh, organization that people can look to and think, well, this is, this is a noble and well-run place. And so when I asked him how he was dealing with COVID, one of the things that he was doing was he said, well, I have to go in every day to headquarters. So I'm very careful about it. And there are only about 10 of us. But how can I ask the people working for our, co our company who are at risk, how can I ask them to put themselves at risk and I quietly hide away at home? And so that was really interesting for me to see, you know, the modesty of this guy at home who's still married to the woman he's been dating since he was 15 years old, since they went to a, a custard stand on their first date driven by his parents. And there's just something really understated about him. And, and so when you look at his, his, his very rational, reasonable, calm way of uh, approaching investing, it's very consistent with that very um, stable, steady, constant, understated approach to life. And so I, I think that's, that's part of what I'm trying to do is show that there's a real consistency between the way people operate in one area of life and, and the way they operate in markets. To be a good investor, I think that you need to be a reasonable student of humans, of humanity. And I think that to be a good writer, you need a, a very similar skill. You need to understand motivation and, and, and various other things like that. It sounds like you spend a lot of time with them to get this appreciation, but where did you, where did you learn your, your process or where does that process come from? It's very intuitive because people can tell you. I mean, I, I did go to journalism school. I went to Columbia Journalism School, which is which is supposed to be the best journalism school in the world. But I, 
I'm not sure. I, I sometimes think that my uh, professors there would be horrified by the way that I do things. I mean, I'm, for one thing, I don't really fully buy into the myth of objectivity, which is something that a lot of journalists swear by. And I... Could just, what, what is that? Just, just... Well, you there was always this idea that you wanted to present both sides of the story. You wanted to... Um, you wanted to be extremely balanced. I'm trying to do something different. So I'm trying to be very truthful. I'm trying to make things very factually accurate, but I'm actually trying to get so deeply inside the mind of someone that I'm writing about that I'm kind of explaining, this is how they see the world. And this is what we can learn from the way they see the world. And I think by nature, I'm somewhat empathetic. And so when I'm with someone, and I'm interviewing them deeply and I'm asking them about the hardest periods in their life. And for example, I'm asking Tom Gaynor about what it, what it was like when he lost all of his hair during the financial crisis or, uh, or asking Howard Marks about his divorce or, or asking Bill Miller about what it was like when he put on 40 pounds during the financial crisis and 100 people got laid off because of a mistake that he'd made. And, and so that's a very intimate thing. And I, I think one reason why I can go into that area with these people is I'm not very judgmental. I think I'm, I'm very empathetic and I think I'm pretty open about the fact that I've screwed up in all sorts of ways in my life and that, that I'm wrestling with different setbacks and, and mistakes that I've made. And I'm trying to figure out, so, so how do you bounce back from failure? How do you bounce back when you feel that you're you know, publicly shamed or that you've screwed up or that you've let people down? What, how do you deal with it? And so that's a very different thing than, than writing for the New York Times and, and giving this sense of, well, on the other hand, this person says this. I'm not really that interested in it. I, I'll talk to lots of other people but I'm aiming for a kind of deep truth that, that's very enigmatic. And, and you don't truly know, you never really know whether you've got it right or not. Um, and I've made enough mistakes over the years that, that it kind of keeps you humble because you know that you can screw up. Uh, but I, but I, think, I think when you're finished, you know, I used, to, I used to have this slight attack dog approach to journalism, right? I would write a story. I, I once wrote a story for a magazine about the guys from the Kaufman Fund, for example. And, and I was holding them up as poster boys for everything that was wrong with the mutual fund business. And I was saying, here are these guys who underperformed the market by 50 percentage points over the last three years. This is many years ago. And yet they made $60 million in fees. And I had a little bit of a gotcha attitude of a young feisty man wanting to get even with the world and show them how smart I was. And I think as I grow older, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a very old man of 52 now. Um, as I grow older, I think I'm more empathetic and I'm more curious about why, why people think the way they do and, and what, how, they, how they deal with their own vulnerabilities. And so, so that I think is very different from, from a traditional cold detached journalistic approach which clearly has its virtues but it's just it's just not the game i'm i'm playing at this point 
How do you come back? Long-winded answer. Sorry. No, I, I, this is a podcast. <laughs> uh, the more the, the longer your answers, the fewer questions I have to ask. Okay, so good. Please uh, expand as much as you would like to. Uh, how do you come back from uh, a, a catastrophe or from a catastrophic loss? Well, I, I write in the epilogue of the book about what the money does for you. Uh, it's a it's a chapter called Beyond Rich, and I talk about you know. Well, yeah, the money is all great, but unless you have equanimity, unless you have um, resilience, you're toast. And so you have to really work on your inner life. And I looked at a few characters in that in that epilogue who I I find very helpful and instructive in my own life. And I think Bill Miller is one of the most interesting. Uh, he's someone I've interviewed, I think, for the best part of 100 hours over the last 20 years. I spent enormous time with Bill. Uh, I, I wrote a very long profile of him for Fortune about 20 years ago at the at the peak of him beating the market for 15 years running. And then and then I would write about him during the financial crisis. And then I came back after the financial crisis when he was incredibly bruised um, and everything had gone wrong. There was a year where I think he, he lost on like 65 percent in, in his smaller fund. And and. Um, you know, his assets under management went down from something like $77 billion to $800 million. And then over the last couple of years, I've spent a lot of time with him. So I went and spent two days with him in, in, in Maryland and then talked to him again a couple of weeks ago. And so one of the things that's been really wonderful has been to see him recovering from the nightmare of the financial crisis. And partly what Bill did that I think is very instructive is he was always obsessed with Stoic philosophy, right? He had studied philosophy at, at college as a postgrad, and he, he uses philosophy for everything. So many years ago, when he was buying the biggest position in Amazon of any fund manager, it was based on, to some degree, what he'd learned from Wittgenstein and Henry James about misperception, how everyone was misperceiving things. And this time during the financial crisis, he was again drawing on philosophy. So he was saying, well, the Stoics like Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius, they're really focusing on differentiating between what you can and can't control. And so I can't control my reputation. I can't control the fact that people are bad mouthing me. He, he, he showed me this, this tweet at one point where I think he'd, he'd, he'd had this, his, his extraordinary recovery over the last decade had, had already begun. And he showed me this tweet where someone had said something like, that asshat Bill Miller uh, just got lucky again. And he's like, he's like, wow, asshat Bill Miller, that, that's pretty harsh. And so, you know, he's, it's not like he's not hurt when people are mocking him and, and deriding him as being an idiot. But, but he was able to say, well, I can't really control that, but I can control the fact that my process is really good, that my principles of investing, of buying things cheap, are really good and that over 20 or so years I've proven that I can tell the difference between what's cheap and what's expensive so let me just keep doing that I'm not trying to vindicate my reputation let me try to get back the money that I lost for people and he also he he read um Jim Stockdale's extraordinary book at the time which is uh, this book about Stockdale being I guess tortured multiple times in the Hanoi Hilton and Stockdale who was a remarkable guy who had um, who had been studying um, Epictetus and the Stoics while he was at Stanford it, later in his career. He is he was ejecting from his plane that was shot down over Vietnam, 
said something to himself like, uh, I'm leaving the world of technology and entering the world of Epictetus. And so he again was actually applying these, these principles from philosophy where one of, one of the great ideas that you get from Stoicism is that, that you can't control your external circumstances, but you can control aspects of your behavior, like trying to be a virtuous person. And so just trying to behave with honor for Bill Miller became a very important guiding point to say, well, let me be honest about my mistakes. Let me have a sense of humor. Let me, let me not take myself too seriously. Let me learn from the mistakes. So I'm going to be a little less diversified, uh, a little more diversified than I was. I'm going to take a little more, um, more caution because I need to accept the fact that I, was I didn't realize how catastrophically wrong I could be. Because he said that at a certain point when everyone tells you for so many years how smart you are, and you just are right, right, right the whole time. He said at a certain point that seeps in. And, and there was an extraordinary moment where I said to him, when you look back, and, and I'd been through the wars myself, I had been running the European, Middle East and African edition of Time magazine um, when I was fairly young and felt like this kind of high flying guy. And then I got laid off during the financial crisis. So I had been very bruised, but then it turned out to be this enormous blessing. I mean, it set, it set me on a different path. It's been really wonderful. So I was saying to him, do you, do you feel like in some way the pain and disgrace of the financial crisis has been a gift to you? And he said, yeah, it's been very cathartic. It's been very cleansing for the ego. And, and he said, one of the things that happens is when you're really successful, everyone's always getting you on things like CNBC and stuff to pontificate about things that you don't even necessarily know about. And he said, when you've made a fool of yourself and you're wrong about the market in such a catastrophic way, nobody wants to hear from you. And he said, that's a really wonderful thing for your ego. And so there was something, there was something for me very moving about the fact that I'd seen Bill through 20 years of ups and downs, and I could see him putting his life back together. And, I, and it gave me real joy as we were we were at his house, which is this wonderful house um, with the, the most astonishing book collection you've ever seen. And we're walking into his garden and because um, he wanted to show me this sculpture that was basically where he's going to be buried. He, he said, this is where my ashes are going to be scattered. And so he's already thinking of his own impermanence. He's just like, yeah, this is all just go, you know, it'll all just float away. And, and we're walking into his garden and I said, it's really amazing. You've actually put back your life together in a way that's totally true to who you are. You're totally unconstrained and free to be Bill Miller. Like you don't have a board that's bossing you around, like you, you know, or, or overseeing you. I mean, he he loved Lake Mason, but he definitely had a lot of oversight there. Uh, you don't have vulnerability to your shareholders yanking their money out uh, any day. You have you have control over your time. You have control over your money. You're, you're working with your son, you, you know, you just got this small team and there's something wonderful. It's like you're unconstrained and, and, uh, and he was like, yeah, it's the best. And so for me to see Bill go through all of these wars and put his life back together in this really honorable, strong, kind of noble, noble way was a tremendous treat. And I, I you know, I, I, I used to have enormous, enormous admiration for Bill's wild intellect, the fact that he, he, he just has this thrilling mind. And what I realized over the years is actually the thing I respect most about Bill is his, his, his indomitability that he, that he survived 
he survived that that tremendous fire and came back and put his life back together in a way that's that's really in alignment with who he is in the deepest sense. You've uh, been conducting these interviews. It says on the book you've been conducting the or perhaps in the in, in the uh, little overview that I got that you've been conducting these interviews. For, with some of these folks for sort of 25 years. And I, no, I noticed one name in here that I thought was very interesting. You've got, you've got, you've had a discussion with Sir John Templeton. So how, how was the uh, discussion with, what, what, what did Sir John have to, to, to offer? Yeah, that, that was a fascinating experience. And I feel like I've been wrestling with the memory of Sir John for 20 odd years, because I don't feel like I got that right when I first wrote about him. And so I, I went to the Bahamas 20 or so years ago when he was just about to turn 86 I think and you know for me this this was like the consumer magazine journalism story right I'm going off to this beautiful place that's really sunny in the middle of a shitty New York winter or late fall and and I get to stay in this beautiful hotel and go interview this iconic guy and I think maybe I had slightly conned him into thinking that I really just wanted to write about, you know, the fact that he was at that point obsessed with his whole spiritual research um, uh, campaign where he, he was, he was talking about how his goal really was to increase spiritual information a hundredfold. And I sort of, in the way that, cunning journalists would sort of said yeah I really want to write about you know what you're doing these days with all of this spiritual stuff but really I wanted to figure out oh here's this fascinating guy who was like one of the greatest investors of all time and what can I what can I um, learn from him about how to invest and how to get rich and I think so we spent a, much of a day together and I was very struck by the difference between his image as this kind of saintly figure, um, this grand old man who is super courtly. I mean, he had this wonderfully courtly, charming manner. But then this reality that I saw of this other side of his personality that was very, very tough and slightly sanctimonious and pious and judgmental. And I was a bit of a mess. I mean, my mind was all over the place. And here's this guy who won't even allow himself a negative or unproductive thought. And, and you know, he was so disciplined that he would say things. One guy I interviewed about him said to me that when he first met Sir John, Sir John said to him, meet me at 4.02. I have another meeting at 4.13. And, you know, he, he was a billionaire who would take scraps of paper and staple them together to write on them. And while I was interviewing him, he... He, he didn't want to waste any time. So there was a point where I'm asking him questions and he's literally underlining a book for me at the same time. Um, and so there, there was something kind of intimidating about him and slightly cold and slightly threatening to me, even though he was very courtly and charming. And what I guess I realized many years later when I was writing this book is that he had mastered this inner game. He'd mastered his own mind and his time and his energy to an extraordinary degree. And I had been too naive to see it. And I think too, too much of a mess myself, too disorganized and, and scatterbrained and late for everything and chaotic to appreciate just how 
profoundly powerful it was to have those characteristics. And he, he had been on a holiday very, very early in his life with, with his first wife, who had died on a, on a motorcycle, leaving him with three young children to raise. And so I think, I think one, of the, one of the reasons he was able to survive and thrive was because he had this extraordinary control over his own mind. And, and you, saw it, you saw it also with investing. I mean, I, I, I write at great length about what I regard as the great bet of the 20th century, where he, he made this astonishing contrarian bet as the world is falling apart during World War II and quintupled his money at a point where it just seemed insane for anybody to invest. I mean, it seemed like an inappropriate, an inappropriate investment to insurance companies, for example, to buy stocks. And, and here you have this young guy buying 104 stocks, all priced at less than a dollar. It, it, as, as Germany had just invaded France and Poland and the world is falling apart. And he said to me, I, I asked, has your faith really helped you as an investor? And he said, he said, yeah, I never was depressed or despairing ever once. And so as I say in that, in that section about him, he, he, he never forgot that the sun also rises. And it's a really powerful lesson for a period like this, where people have been having a terrible time during COVID, obviously. And what someone like Sir John just saw is, yeah, but the sun also rises. You survive these catastrophic periods and then, and then things improve. And so I, I think in some ways I was too naive and too judgmental to understand what, he, what made him extraordinary. And there's a thing in the notes on, sec uh, on, on additional resources, that, which is a very quirky section that I've added to the book on, on things that people should read, where I talk about reading books of Sir John's a couple of years ago and literally groaning out loud and blushing, feeling myself blush and just saying, oh, and realizing that there were things he was trying to teach me 20 years ago that I was too stupid and too opinionated to listen to. And so for me, one of the great... One of the great lessons of writing about Sir John has just been to try to keep an open mind. That that there, that here, here was a guy who was willing to fund research at places like Harvard into whether prayer worked, and he would ask me these. He would say, "Well, the sort of questions I'm exploring are: Does the person need to?" be putting their hands on the person they're praying for? Do they need to be with them? Do they need to say, thy will be done? Or do they need to, uh, is it better for the person who's sick to do the praying? And I, I was a sort of smart alecky, then probably agnostic or atheistic guy. And actually the joke is now I'm, I'm much, much more spiritual. He would, he would approve of the direction in which my life has gone. But I was, I, I just rolled my eyes at things like that. I thought, here's this kind of nutcase. And at one point I said to him, do people ever, ever say, you know, you're a kook? And he's, and he's like, yes, but I was always confident enough not to care what people thought. And I, and, and I did understand that that was part of his extraordinary power as an investor, was the fact that he just didn't give a damn what anybody thought of him. And I, and I thought, I, so, so, I mean, that, that has clearly turned out to be one of the key characteristics of all of the great investors that I've written about, this, this ability to go their own way and not really care how other people judge them. But I didn't understand 
the second great lesson that that you you need to master this inner game this this inner landscape of your thoughts and emotions because for one thing markets are so tumultuous that if you don't if you don't gain control over that stuff sooner or later you're going to come undone We've discussed a number of men, but uh, Laura Gerritz, that's, that's a name that perhaps folks may not be as familiar with. Uh, who is Laura and what, is, uh, what, what are her lessons? Laura is really fascinating. She's, she's a very unlikely character in a, in a business that's really dominated by alpha males. And she comes from, from, from a really rural area of Kansas and was the daughter of an academic um, and you know there were members of her family who I think were factory workers and farmers. I mean, from a really modest background, and she's kind of this this diminutive, soft-spoken woman. And and what I came to appreciate, among other things, about her is that she's an absolute warrior. I mean, the the toughness and ingenuity and talent that she's had to get uh, that she's had to apply to get to where she is is astonishing. And she she runs these international and frontier funds where um, basically she, she's, going, she's going to countries that most people can't stand, that are massively out of favor. So Turkey at a time when, you know, it's just had a coup failure and, and judges have been thrown in jail and soldiers have been thrown in jail and journalists have been thrown in jail. And she's going there and, and looking to pick up the two or three best companies in the country. So, so the best companies at the worst possible time. And, and then she's just very patient. So, so she's, she's obsessed with Templeton, actually. Templeton is, and she said to me that the chapter about Templeton is her favorite chapter in the book, because um, I gave her an advanced copy. And so she's, she's very risk averse but she's operating in these countries that are pretty risky. And so she tends to be buying companies that have um, so much cash that they're just going to survive. And she's traveled to, I think, 75 countries. And part of what I thought was fascinating about, about Laura is that she's, she's a true intellectual. She's just an intellectual seeker. She's sort of incorrigible. She's, so every trip she goes on, she reads multiple books before she goes there. Every, she'll, she'll go station herself in a country for weeks or months on end. She bought a home in Kyoto in Japan and just went and lived, lived in, in Japan. Um, she's a remarkable kind of explorer. And so she's, she's gaining an informational edge by understanding the culture of these different places. So she speaks fluent Japanese, deeply immersed in the culture, understands, for example, the fact that, that they have a totally different attitude towards shareholders. And so she said to me that, that in terms of the hierarchy of things that they care about there, the shareholder is kind of lost. They, they care about the community, they care about their business partners, their employees, their customers, the last thing, you know, the last group that they're serving the shareholders and she said and and she said also they have this tremendous respect for for permanence and and deferred gratification and so they're actually trying to survive you know there are these companies in japan that have existed for centuries and so when a westerner comes in and pressures a japanese company to to sort of juice up its returns in the short term she's like they just don't understand the culture and so I thought that was really fascinating that you have this deeply cerebral person from, 
you know, a totally surprising offbeat culture who's just obsessed with learning about businesses and, and, and learning about different countries. And part of what was fascinating to me was the sacrifice that she made to do this. And so I, you know, she, she, she has a, a husband who she loves dearly, who frequently will be living in Kyoto while she's living in, in Utah. Um, so they'll spend months of the year apart. Um, they didn't have kids because she said when she was when she was starting out in the profession, it was just so clear that to, to, to keep up with the men that she was competing with, she just would have to work all of the time. And then she said by the time she was ready, it kind of got away from her. And her husband had sort of decided, well, maybe it's just too late and we, we don't want to do that. And so I could see the, 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 the personal cost, but at the same time, the the intensity and the drive and the fascination with businesses and countries. And I, I just, I find her a deeply admirable and kind of fascinating character. And, and like many of these people in the book, totally self-invented. I mean, someone who's, who's just created their own path. And, and I, maybe that was one reason why all of these people I'm writing about appeal to me is that they're people who are very free thinkers. You know, Francois Rochon, who I write about briefly, said to me that he thinks all of the best investors have a non-tribal gene. You know, they're lacking the tribal gene. They don't, they don't need to stay inside the herd. And he's an art collector. And so he said that he thinks artists and writers also tend to lack that tribal gene. And I, I clearly lack the tribal gene. You know, I'm, I, and I've, I find it when I invest as well that I'm much happier when the market's going down, and I can buy when it's out, when things are out of favor. I, there's a sort of calm that descends then. Whereas when everything's going well, I, I just feel that it's all going to fall apart and disaster is coming. And so, so I, I do think there's something deeply non-tribal about all of these people, whether it's whether it's Laura Gerritz or Charlie Munger or Ed Thorpe or, or Templeton. They're they're truly thinking for themselves. You, you have a, uh, a section on Jean-Marie Eviard, uh, the French value investor. When you, mm. how, how does, uh, what's, what's a, a distinction between Jean-Marie and, and perhaps the uh, English speaking or uh, British or American investors, what stands out as being something that he does distinctly differently? I think one of, the, I mean, Jean-Marie lived in New York and still I think lives in New York. So he's very immersed in, in, in American culture, but I think one of the things I would say about Jean-Marie that's very distinctive is just that he has this sense that life is difficult and it's full of unexpected occurrences and misfortune. And he, he grew up in France, I guess, around 1945, I think he was born. And so he was growing up in a France that had been sort of devastated by the war. And he talked to me about going to his grandmother's church in the in the countryside in France when he was a little boy and the priest saying you shouldn't expect life to be good life it, life is all about suffering this is not a bed of roses and and things will only be good when you die and you go to heaven and and so Jean-Marie grew up with this slightly mournful melancholy attitude about the you know the likelihood of of suffering and pain that I think in some strange way prepared him extraordinarily well to be a very conservative global investor. And so he just, 
he just always had this kind of cautious respect for uncertainty. And so he, he had these extraordinary returns over decades. But when you look back at, at the reason he did so well, he basically explained that it was, it was because he avoided three catastrophes. And it was basically the catastrophe of the Japanese market blowing up in the late 80s. So I think he pulled out of Japan entirely in 1988 when he couldn't find a single stock cheap enough to buy. And so, I, I mean, I think at the peak of the Japanese bubble, it, the Japanese stocks were something like 45% of the market value uh, of global stocks. And I, I mean, Japanese stocks were worth more than the UK and the US stocks combined. And so here you have a global fund manager who says, no, I can't find a single company to buy in Japan. And then he did the same thing during the dot-com bubble, where he almost destroyed his career because he refused to buy any of those tech stocks or internet stocks. And then in around 2007, shortly before he retired, he didn't own any of the financial stocks because he couldn't find anything cheap enough. And so this, this, this sort of risk aversion, this sense of life is not a bed of roses, and there are these terrible things that can happen, served him very well because it enabled him to, to avoid these three great catastrophes. But one of the things that was interesting about Jean-Marie, it, it was clear that, that, that this career had taken a psychological toll. It was hard. I mean, particularly during the, the, um, the tech bubble, the dot-com bubble, he, he almost blew up his entire career by doing the right thing, by, by not getting sucked into this bubble. And people were kind of mocking him. Even, even the directors at his own fund were, were deriding him. He, he told me that, that one day he, he was told that one of the people at his company said, well, Jean-Marie is half senile anyway. And he said, I was 59. <laughs> and, he said, and he said, I went home. And, and I told my wife, who's this sort of battle-hardened investment banker, he said, I, uh, you know, they said I'm half senile. And she, she, he said she didn't even raise her eye from the newspaper and just said, only half. And, and so you, know, you saw this guy who had done everything right, who had been so cautious and so prudent with his shareholders' money, a real custodian. And, and it almost wrecked him. I mean, his, his fund was sold the fund business was sold from out under him and for, for something like 5% of what it would ultimately be worth. And so he had, much like Bill Miller, he, he was sort of redeemed in the end. And, and, and um, you know, he, he ended up being hailed as, you know, Morningstar's manager of the year. And the, I think he got their inaugural Lifetime Achievement Award. But it was fascinating to me to see this guy who'd really been through the ringer to get there. And even when I said to him, was it difficult to balance your career and your family? He said, yeah, I neglected my daughters. And he said, I, I, I really regret it. And I said, would you, do you think you could have been as successful a stock picker as you were and a good father? And he said, I don't know. He said, as, as, the, as the preacher at my grandmother's church said, life is not simple. And so I, I think one of the things that I'm trying to convey is that to be, to be extraordinary at anything requires, requires some sacrifice and also probably requires some quirks in your wiring and your temperament. And so these are literally extraordinary people because to, be, to, to beat the market over many years, you have to diverge from the crowd. 
And, and that requires you to be a little bit strange, very independent, temp temperamentally probably different than most people. The, uh, the final name that I'd like to discuss is Arnold Vandenberg, who's, uh, I, I only recently learned of his story in the last 12 months or so. I think he gave an interview. Uh, he's a Holocaust survivor. Can you, can yeah. you tell uh, his story? Yeah, Arnold is absolutely extraordinary, a, a wonderful human being. And I, I end the book with him. And I, I explain in the book why I regard him in some ways as the single greatest role model of anyone I've interviewed in the investment world. And I, the way I think of it myself is that he may not be the most successful investor of all, but he's the most successful human being in the investment business in many ways. And, and part of what's so fascinating about Arnold's story is that he was dealt the worst hand you could possibly be dealt. And so if we go back to um, Ed Thorpe, um, Ed Thorpe basically says, well, look, you're dealt a particular set of cards in life, and, and then your choices influence whether you win or not. How, you know, you, you have control over how well you play those cards, whether it's with your health or your investing or anything. So Arnold was dealt the worst hand of all of these people. I mean, his, his spent, he, he was born on the same street as Anne Frank, and a Jewish kid in 1939 as as the Nazis are invading the Netherlands. And so he spent the first part of his life in hiding with his parents and his brother um, behind basically a fake wall in some Christian friend's house in Amsterdam. And then at a certain point, um, his parents realized, well, this is a terrible bet that if the, if the Nazis come in to search the house and Arnold, who I think was about two at the time, if he cries, they're going to take everyone away and the and and the first the first people who would be killed in auschwitz were basically the children and, and the women and so they decided that they would try to get arnold and his brother sigmund smuggled out of amsterdam into a farm or an orphanage in arnold's case a farm in sigmund's case in, in the countryside. And so this 17-year-old, approximately 17-year-old girl um, from a Christian family smuggles Arnold out across, <laughs> through all of these checkpoints into the countryside, past a, a group of SS officers at the train station in the countryside where she arrives, risking her life to save this two-year-old kid who she'd never met and whose family she didn't know. I mean, an astonishing thing. And, and part of what I do in the book is I'm literally, I'm naming these people because I feel like, you know, they, they should be remembered. And she, so, and, and he wondered for many years, why, why did this girl save my life? And he, and he, he, he had terrible early years and he'd, his wife left him, his first wife, so very happy second marriage. His first wife left him for another man. Uh, and he was in, um, he was in therapy for years with a, a shrink who had a huge impact on him. And, the, and he said to the shrink, I don't understand why that girl saved my life. And the shrink said to him, well, it's simple. And he said, really, what do you mean it's simple? And he said that for some people, their principles are more important than their life. And for other people, their life is more important than their principles. And so Arnold really took this to heart and decided, well, I'm going to live a life based on my principles, and I'm going to try to be worthy of the people who saved my life. And 
So here's a guy, he barely made it through high school. I mean, he was probably malnourished from growing up in this orphanage during the Holocaust. He lived in a really rough neighborhood in East LA after, I mean, his parents had been in Auschwitz and they, they survived and they moved to East LA where he would get beaten up the whole time. Um, he didn't think he was very bright. He had no financial training, then discovers Ben Graham when he's about 30 something and sets up a fund at the age of 35 with no education, no, no, no skills, no track record, no clients, no office, nothing. And just is maniacally focused. And again, like Templeton got control over his mind and his thoughts. And, you know, he was full of rage in the early days against the Nazis and against his parents, um, against the anti-Semites who would beat him up as he went home from school. And he, he learned to hypnotize himself. And he literally, he would, he, he would have these affirmations the whole time. And he would say things like, no, I, I am a loving person over and over again. And so to an extraordinary degree, he really took control of his inner landscape. And he became this extraordinary, very loving, very kind, very decent human being. And had a, a you know, an extreme, he's 81 now. He's had a, 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 I mean, he had an extraordinary stretch for about 38 years where he beat the market by an absolute mile. It's a tough time in the last few years because he's very contrarian. And so he's, he's been betting on areas like, like, like oil at a time when nobody wanted to own oil stocks. Um, I, I think, again, he'll, he'll do fine in the end, but it's been a tough period. Um, and he, for me, is just an extraordinary role model in so many ways. And I, I talked to him yesterday, just by chance, and he said to me very quietly, I, I talked to him a lot, and, and he said to me, William, I don't really understand why you said you would pick me as such a great role model. And I said to him, Arnold, you're, you're the most giving and sharing and kind person of any of these people I've written about. It's an unbelievable thing. And I see, I see how much joy you get out of, out of sharing with people and helping people. I mean, literally, I look out of my window and there's a trampoline outside that he gave me because he was worried that I was so slothful. And the next door neighbor's kids are like jumping on this trampoline of his. I mean, so, so you know, everywhere you look there, you find people who've been sent books by Arnold. He's just a very loving guy. And he told me this wonderful story where he said, he said he has this childhood friend who was at high school with him who leaped to his defense in a fight. Arnold became a very tough warrior who sort of stood up for himself and learned to, learned to box at a certain point and, and became a champion rope climber, um, which in those days was an Olympic sport. And um, so he became kind of tough. And he said he was in this fight very early on. And there was a kid at his school who said to him, well, I'll, I'll come help you. And so he and these three other kids who were all from very tough, very violent homes. I mean, they were all beaten up, I think, by their parents. We're all, um, have remained really close even into their eighties. And he tells me this story about this friend. And he says, I remember when we were really young and he'd saved up for years and he bought this beautiful car that he was so proud of, just a gorgeous car. And then one night he, he gets in a crash and, and he calls me and he's just, devastated and he said and I go over to his house and I say don't worry Willie this isn't this isn't so bad I think we can repair this and Willie says to him you think so Arnold I, I don't see look it's just wrecked and he's like no Willie we're, we're going to go to the scrapyard and we're going to get a new fender and a new this and a new that and he said and and we went to the scrapyard and we got all of this stuff and we spent ages and we fixed up his car and we spray painted it and everything and he said he was so happy and he's like 
I've had that photo of him looking that happy with his car in my office ever since then, all these years, you know, so probably, I don't know, is this 50, 55 years later, he still has that. And he said, I got as much joy out of that as anything I could have done for myself. And this, it, you know, that's just a beautiful story that he told me yesterday, that's such quintessential Arnold, where you just see that he'll, he'll say to you things like he said, I thank God every day that I got this money, because it just gives me such joy to be able to help other people. And he's like, you know, and it doesn't affect me that much. It's not like it changes the way I eat or anything. You know, I mean, he's basically a vegan who eats, you know, these appalling celery and beetroot kind of juices all day long. And so, you know, I mean, it's not exactly, not exactly spending a fortune on, on himself. And he lives in a really modest home. And, you know, it's just a really modest, decent guy. And so for me, Arnold is a, is not just a really smart investor, but he's just such a consummate human being. And, and when you see someone like that and you, you see the joy that this guy gets out of just being a mensch, just being decent and loving and kind, it, it has a real impact on you. And so I, part of what I tried to do in the book is say, yeah, yeah, you, you wanna make money. You, you wanna have financial security. You wanna be financially independent. You wanna be able to take care of your family send your kids to whatever college they want to go to or whatever, you know, not, not have the, the pain and fear of not being able to take care of yourself. And you want to have a cushion, but you really don't want to lose sight of what the money is for. And you, you don't want to worship it. And you don't want to worship, you know, external success and measures of your own wealth and brilliance. And and there's something lovely about the fact that Arnold, this guy who doesn't have a yacht, doesn't have a plane, and really only, only, uh, you know, he, he didn't even want to get a nice car. He drove the cheapest car, and then his wife really wanted to get him a car. And he said, I saw how much pleasure she got out of me having this car. So he's like, initially, I was really embarrassed to drive it. But, but after a while, I, you know, I got used to it. And so when you see someone like that, it just makes you realize that, that there's a there's a kind of worldly wisdom to the best of the people in this book that's very different from just the ability to make money. And so one of the things I hope that people get from the book is, is they, it, it helps them to invest better. It helps them to achieve that financial independence. But they, they also look at some of these extraordinary characters like a, like a Tom Gaynor or an Arnold Vandenberg or a Nick Sleep or an Ed Thorpe. And they say, actually, there's, there's deep wisdom in the way these people have lived their lives. And it's, it's not that they're perfect individuals, but there are aspects of them that I really, to, to use a phrase from Monish Pavrai, that I really want to clone because it'll, it'll help me to stack the odds in my favor in, in life. William, uh, absolutely fascinating discussion. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, unfortunately, we're running out of time. If, uh, if folks want to get in touch with you or follow along with what you're doing, what's the best way to do that? Well, I'm on Twitter at William Green 72. I'm on LinkedIn. You're, if you figure out how to email me, you're welcome to email me. I spend ridiculous amounts of time replying to people's messages because um, it's lovely when I hear from people who are actually affected by different things in, in, in the book and by things I've talked about. And, and it's an ongoing conversation. I'm, I'm learning about this stuff and I'm trying to figure out how to become richer, wiser and happier. And so if, if your listeners hear stuff or read stuff or meet people that they think I should be interviewing and learning more about and sharing their ideas, please let me know. Um, I, I, I really hope it's an ongoing conversation. 
There's some profound wisdom in the book. The book's called Richer, Wiser, Happier, How the World's Greatest Investors Win in Markets and Life by William Green. Uh, we'll link it up in the show notes. William, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's been a delight talking to you. <laughs>